annual Luther Vandross Tribute Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. Thank you for listening. My former boss, Luther Vandross, would have turned 70 this year on April 20th, which gives me a reason to pause and just take a minute to reflect on the positive impact he had on my life and the increasing need to help empower others to keep their house a home by learning how to prevent the diabetes health-related complication from occurring such a stroke. According to the Center of Disease Control, someone in the United States has a stroke every 40 seconds, and every four minutes someone dies of a stroke. Luther had many good reasons for not making his diabetes health a priority, and um, I believe them until it was too late. That truly was a mistake, and so that's why I want you to join me on a virtual event in May when I'll be a guest with the Fraser Family Coalition for Stroke Education and Prevention in Philadelphia. The details will be posted at divabetter.org. What you just heard was a snippet from the song, Give Me the Reason, which was featured on the soundtrack to the movie Ruthless People, starring Beth Midler. By the time Luther had recorded his fifth album, entitled Give Me the Reason, back in 1986, he had become one of the most successful singers in the first half, the 80s. The four previous albums he recorded had all been either certified platinum or double platinum. His appearance also changed dramatically. A slim, trim Luther Vandross appears on the album's cover, which is giving us reason to not only talk about his musical legacy tonight, but to also discuss his struggles with weight and how focusing too much on weight loss can impact your spirit as well as your ability to manage your type 2 diabetes. Luther himself admitted he was a certified serial yo-yo dieter who lost and gained 110 to 120 pounds about eight or nine times during his lifetime. My guests tonight include vocalist Lisa Fisher, keyboardist, arranger, producer, Jason Miles, Sony Music executive, Jeff James, Trisha Addy Gentle, and entertainer from St. Louis, Chuck Flowers, who I was talking to a little bit earlier tonight. Um, I'm just so excited to have everyone on the show tonight that I just have to take one more minute and thank you all for being a part of this. This has become a real tradition at Divabetic to do these tribute podcasts. And I think tonight we finally have an opportunity to really dive deep into not only the musical legacy, but again, into some of the health awareness. So this next song is one of my favorites off this album, Give Me the Reason. Luther wrote or co-wrote about six or uh, eight songs off this album, but this is my favorite tonight. I gave it up. When I fell in love, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. I used to be such a bad, bad boy. And 
know, Luther has been motivating me to do diabetes outreach since 2003, and uh, I've got another program coming up this week. It's the Divabetic Zoom program featuring a fun presentation on style as well as eating tips that won't trip you up on this Thursday night, April 15th from 7 to 8 p.m. on Zoom. You can register at divabetic.org. Straight ahead, it's time to welcome my first guest, who's the director of A&R, A&R, everybody, at Sony Entertainment, who's responsible for creating music projects for retail, lifestyle, and online accounts. Join us to share a music insider's look at Luther's career around the time of the release of Give Me the Reason is our good friend, Jeff James. Hi, Jeff. Hey there, Max. Great to be on. Thanks for joining us tonight and celebrating Luther's legacy. Sure. All right, so um, I want to dive into this because my research kind of shows that Luther's career was kind of climbing to greater and greater heights at the time of the release of this album in 1986. You mentioned to me in a private conversation that Luther put a lot of work into his career to get to this point. Can you just kind of explain uh, what kind of work he was doing up to now? Yeah, for sure. You know, Luther was always a very smart artist uh he his songs appeared on soundtracks as well as his own albums so it, it gave him a lot of additional exposure uh when it when it comes to having songs on soundtracks uh, so i mean that's one of the things that he kind of positioned himself as well as you know his his background working with people like david bowie and 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 uh and barbara streisand and it, it it's just like he positioned himself to 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 have his career escalate, you know, an upward moment because uh, you know, from the beginning, I mean, he it's, it just seems to have climbed, climbed up. And at this time, also, we should say that in the music industry, there was this new thing going on, which was music videos, which were being played on stations like VH1, MTV, and a BET. How did that potentially impact what was going to become such a mega success for him with this album, Give Me the Reason? Yeah, it just it, the visual aspect of it all. I mean, MTV, VH1, all those to BET, they, they, they've broken artists. Uh, and it just adding the visual element just, just kind of elevated his music beyond just having it on, on vinyl or or any kind of recorded medium. It was just it was definitely the visuals. And that kind of brings us back to what I was saying earlier about the focus on his appearance. Because at this time when he came out with Give Me the Reason, he was much thinner, which I would think in many ways people would say that that made him much more of a appealing to be a visual artist. Do you think that had any impact on the success of this album or its ability to cross over? Yeah, you know, it, it's such a touchy subject and you know, forgive me, but I, we we have to we have to mention the optics of that. I mean, give me the give me the reason was the first time we've seen the the the, the trimmer Luther. I mean, as you explained, this was his fifth album, and 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 especially with with the MTVs and the VH1s. I mean, he was competing with around the same time period Prince, Billy Ocean, Lionel Richie. I mean, if you if you look at them all, except for Prince, maybe because he's a little bit smaller, but they all had the same body frame. Do you, do you know you know where I'm getting at? I mean, so I, so optics played a big role in him for him crossing over. 
labels put pressure on artists to look a certain way? I mean, it seems fairly evident they did, but I'm just curious since you are you do work in the music industry, is there pressure for someone to maintain their weight? Because it just seems like it would be an obvious uh, issue for someone. Yeah, I could see that. You know, but the thing about it is um, the pressure from from what I've seen it, it, it was one-sided. It was... I would see more pressure for females or, or ladies to, to, to maintain their weight. And that, that's just misogynistic and, and how the industry used to, used to, used to uh, operate. And in some cases still operate today, unfortunately. But, but uh, in Luther's case, I, I felt it was more of him trying to compete or trying to be thinner to full, to compete with all these other people like a, like Alana Ritchie or, or or Billy Ocean, so I don't know if the the label itself told told uh, Luther to lose weight because think about it. I mean, he was selling records still without without losing weight. I mean, the the, the previous albums before that were all platinum or, or double platinum. I know. So let's get back to the music because, like we mentioned at the top of the show. This yeah. uh, song, Give Me the Reason, was featured on a major motion picture at the time. Bette Midler was riding a high with Disney. Ruthless People was a huge movie. M- many people might think that was his first soundtrack song, but it really wasn't. So can you tell us a little bit about Luther's history with soundtracks as we navigate our way through his career in the, at uh, 1986? would love to. You know, I don't know if many people realize in 1981, Luther, uh, well, the Roberta, the, the the soundtrack was Bustin' Loose, and Roberta Flack was the main vocalist on that on that album, and and Luther actually appeared on on uh, just just a song called Just When I Needed You, and he wrote You Stop Loving Me, and which Roberta Roberta Flack uh, performed on, on uh, that that song. And in 1985, I mean, he was on the Goonies, which, if everybody knows, I mean, it was the big popular, popular music, um, popular mu- movie, and it has a lot of pop culture references to that. So to be on that soundtrack, to be on that in 1985, also elevated uh, Luther's profile. And then 1986 so it was weird to think that he was kind of navigating his way to crossover at this point. That there was. He was working with his team to kind of begin to build that steady stream to get the crossover success that is coming with this album. I I hundred percent agree. Um, yes, I, I do because Luther would record his albums, obviously, but then these soundtracks would give him another option to like experiment with other types of music and also be mixed in with a lot of different other artists too. So yeah, it was all part of a part of the plan to. To, to, to bridge the gap between R&B music as well as, you know, pop music. And then the other interesting thing on this album, from uh, I think for a fan's perspective, is the fact that he covered a song that he wrote for Dionne Warwick. Now, we all know from past tribute podcasts that Luther worshipped Dionne Warwick growing up. Yeah. He ultimately, at this point, he had actually produced an album for Dionne Warwick as well as albums for Aretha Franklin. And so now here he's going to the studio and he decides to re-record, I mean, to record a song he wrote for Dionne Warwick. What, what can you tell us about that? Like, what are you, what's your thoughts on that idea that he's re-recording? Like, I guess he did for Roberta Flack, like you just said, he re-recorded a song, You Stop Loving Me Too, for his first album. 
you know, just going from what I understand about Luther's songwriting uh, for other artists, I believe in, in his mind, he had, a, he had a vision of how these songs would sound for that artist. Um, you know, it was his production, obviously, but the way that the artist vocalized his words. And I just feel that when Luther reviewed his own music and wanted to, wanted to re-record like, these songs, he put into effect what he, his vocal ability was and what he could bring to the song. So it's almost like compartmentalizing uh, these songs for the artist and giving them their full attention, but also exploring other nuances and facets of the song. I mean, that, that's how I look at it. Because you know Luther. I mean, he he could just emote and and add additional flavors to a song that maybe some artists either couldn't or he didn't visualize that they could were able to do that. And I, no, I agree. And Jeff, it's interesting because then he's going to record a duet with Gregory Hines, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But then he goes on to produce for Gregory Hines' album. And on that yep. album, he actually does Love Don't Love You, which he then later re-records too. So, I mean, this is really becoming a trend now where he has written songs for other artists. And I know he did give me, uh, Get It Right on another album that he did originally with uh, right. the song without my head. So it is kind of fascinating. But what do you think when you hear this duet with Gregory Hines? It might not have been the most obvious choice of a duet partner back in 1986, because Gregory Hines was experiencing some kind of mainstream success, but not quite to the level of some of his other duet partners, specifically like a Mariah Carey or Janet Jackson. You know, I, I, I kind of feel that this was a, a kind of an experiment, because I don't remember Luther prior or even now duetting with another, with another male, but... What's interesting about Gregory Hines is that even though he's not as the vocalist Luther was, there were some nuances or some flavors in, in his vocals that were very similar to, to Luther's. And I think it, it made a really interesting melding uh, of both those vocals. So I, I, I kind of, Luther knew what he, what he was, was doing with that one, but I feel that it was more of let's, let, let's see where this goes and, and, and go from there. All right, and now talk to me about Stop to Love, because obviously that is a milestone because that was the first top 20 top hit on the Billboard charts for Luther. How, does, how do you think, why do you think that song over as big as it did? Like, where, where do you see the magic in that? Uh, I mean, for, for me, what I, my theory is, is that when Luther grabbed us with Give Me the Reason, you know, upbeat, and and uh, we we were just riding that kind of wave. He didn't want to let us down, so that's when he gave us "Stop to Love." I mean, it, the song it was a perfect perfect follow up to that, and it also led us into his album. So it was it was it was it was perfection, and it, it kept us instead of giving us a ballad like because before this point we knew Luther for his balladry, his you know our, you know that 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 flavor, and uh, and and then "Stop to Love." Just kind of kept the train moving, if you know, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's a reference to the video, but but yeah, that 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 that's what I believe. I want to ask you, Jeff. I know you didn't work with Luther um, 
uh, when he was alive. But how would a record label work with him, like when we're choosing singles and the order for which they were released back in the day? Because a lot of people have heard A&R terms. A lot of us have heard about, like, oh, they, you know, artists saying they didn't choose the right song. How does that happen? Like, he came in with this album, uh, you know, in 1986. He delivered all the tracks to, uh, I would think it would be Walt... Um, I can't think of who was that funny at the time, but I'm sure Jason Miles will be able to tell us in a minute. But yeah. anyhow, like, how would that? How do they negotiate that? Who's choosing what? And and what comes first? How do you do that? Yeah, sure. No, that that's exactly actually where the A and R department or A and R person would come into play. Uh, the A and R artisan repertoire would be would be I don't know who it was um, at Epic at the time, uh, but they would work with Luther and and they would work together typically and and you know the A and R person would review the album and then make suggestions. But at this point, if 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 Luther had a strong um, had a strong direction, they would they would follow that. Typically, it would be. Um, up tempo, up tempo, then ballad. You always want to. That that's the formula I remember from from the whole '80s. It usually the two up tempo songs, which Luther did, and then a ballad. Uh, and that's and that's how it normally works. And from there, the fourth single would be an, would be an, an up tempo song, just to kind of show diversity within within the artist album. I, I just find that so fascinating. But uh, you yeah. know, it, it just. It, that conversation of how these uh, how these artists partnered with labels to do that. I mean, they mm-hmm. kind of had to trust you on your side to take that product and move it in a in a way and see it in a way to success, right? So, um, oh. at that point, like A and R would be helping control the album cover. I would assume. Can you just walk us through like the videos? Like how would how would that happen yeah. in the last minutes of the interview? Like how would you roll out a Luther Vandross album? Like give me the reason. Yeah, well, exactly the, the well the new image that, that with the weight loss. So we're going to put that on the cover. Uh, that would work, and then marketing would get involved by either doing either posters or making sure that the retail outlets know that the new album is out and uh, set up you know uh, record signings if if he did it. I don't I'm not sure if it if that was a big thing in the in the eighties. Well, the artist would work with the creative director to make sure that everything, the color scheme and everything, I mean, if you look at, give you the reason, the, the yellow jacket matches the the, uh, the yellow kind of outline in, in, the, in the print. So even like those little details, you, the, the, there's, there's a kind of flow to the album. And it, it's, it, was, it took a group, group effort, but mostly driven by the artist and the A&R and the A&R person, and they would go to the different departments to make sure that the product represents the uh, the artist correctly, and um, and basically that that's that's the beginning of of the whole bringing together the process of the of the album. I love it. All right, so final question for the fans: how how does Sony Legacy? see this album like what does this album mean to you what do you what stands out what would you say if you had a uh, show meet me on the street and and tell me about this album what would you say well i, I definitely would highlight that that it was the big crossover album for for luther uh it, it's going to be celebrating it's uh, in 19 i'm trying to think we're we're running on the 
we still have a few more years, 20, 25th anniversary of this album. Is that right? Well, 30th. And I was, 30th, that's right. I'm sorry, Ryan. You called me on my math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it would make sure that to, to, to make sure people know that this, this was the album that, 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 that broke Luther, at least to the pop audience. You know, he already had a big following in R&B. And uh, so this was one of the one of the first steps in Luther's crossing over to a to a whole new audience. Oh, that's an amazing milestone! It is the 35th year anniversary of that. Yeah, 35th. Um, sorry. Uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight and celebrating Luther's legacy and giving us a little insider look at his career. Monumental, monumental. Thank All right, you. we're gonna. Um, Continue on. We were just talking about Gregory Hines. I think it's time to play a little bit of that duet. This is one of the big number one R&B songs from the album, uh, Give Me the Reason. It's entitled, There's Nothing Better Than Love, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. Another one of my favorites on this tribute podcast. From the synth programming on Miles Davis's 80s masterpiece to his current album, kind of new black magic, my next guest brought his rich sonic textures as a keyboardist, arranger, and producer to artists in a magnitude of genres. Please welcome the soon-to-be author, Jason Miles. Hello, Jason. Hey, Max. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I know people are anxious to hear all about this. You were working side-by-side side with Luther Vandross in the studio on this recording. What was that well, like? Well, first thing I can say is, 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 is that, you know, I, I don't know who you were just talking to. He's like a, a really nice guy. But, man, I could get into 10 different things that he said, you know, to kind of you know, juice it up and give you the more accurate, you know, story about it and everything, you know. Um, Working on this on this record. Well, this is the first one that I that I did with Luther. Uh, Marcus brought me in because Luther was talking to Marcus about wanting to go and cross over, and he said we need a new sound, we need a new vibe. And then Marcus basically said, "I got it together, man," and he called me, and said, "This is what we want to do." Because I had just gotten done working with Miles on Tutu with Marcus, and we were doing Roberta, and he said, "You know, I'd, I'd love you to come to Montserrat and you know make this record with us because I really, you know, he really wants to cross over into pop." And, uh, and and we're not going to get it the way that we've been doing these records. And I said I got it. So anyway, I brought all my stuff, you know, to Montserrat, and we cut all those tracks. The one you just played is nothing better than love. With of course, I did the whole Gregory Hines album also, you know. Um, 
And, yeah, because um, this is the start of you working with Luther for 10 years, right? I mean, this is the yeah, very beginning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we should tell yep. everyone, Marcus Miller is the one who introduced you to Luther, just because you said Marcus. Absolutely. I just want to make sure. So right, this Marcus is kind Miller, of intriguing, right. though, because you're, you're a synth programmer, and this is a really big departure for Luther, as you write in some really wonderful articles on your website, about this was a real game changer in the studio. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because he, up until well, this point, I believe he's working with his drummer, Yogi, in the studio. Yep, and yep, now here yep. comes uh, Jason Miles with uh, Marcus Feller. Right. Well, you know, Marcus had his way of knowing what he had to do. And, you know, Luther, Luther was like, you know, Luther was like at the stage, which like, he could sell that Radio City Music Hall, no problem, you know. He didn't want to sell that Radio City Music Hall. He wanted to sell out Madison Square Garden, you know. That's what he wanted. And in order for him to get there, he had to up the scene and, and make this stuff, you know, onto the more pop. And to tell you the truth, man, I think the challenge was amazing that him and Nat came up with those tunes. You know, Stop to Love. First of all, Stop to Love was a major moment for me because we had been doing stuff. The first song we cut was so amazing. That was in Montserrat. And then the next cut we did was this one, There's Nothing Better Than Love. And Nat was there for that because the skip wasn't there. So we did the keyboards and everything. And then what happened was that... Um, you know, we, we started this new tune. And he said, this one's got to be like, whoa. And I started, like, checking out what was going on. So, you know, we came up with, first we came up with, like, the monster bass thing, you know, with that monster bass sound. And, you know, it was really like, whoa, you know, this is going to rock, you know, because what happened was that Marcus then started going to the drum machine, okay? And that was definitely creating a vibe because Yogi had played with Luther all those years, but times were changing, man. And, you know, he had Yogi there thinking, you know, they're like, okay, well, they were going to play and everything. But Marcus was definitely picking up the groove that Yogi was playing and then programming it into it. Because what was important to Luther was like, when you did it with synthesizers and if it was done right, the timing was perfect. And he was tired a lot of times of like not having the timing right here, a little bit of fixing that, of fixing this. We didn't have to fix anything. We didn't have to do multiple takes of anything. We just had to do one take and make sure that it was straight with, the, you know, with everything. We'd be using the, the Lin 9000. And so what happened was that, you know, when we did Stop to Love and we did that, I will never forget standing in the room, man, and listening to that come back and seeing everybody had a big smile on their face. And uh, that both speakers were rocking with that, you know, bah, 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 you know, that, that, that part. And then, and then later that day, Marsha Burns came up to me and said to me, hey, you know, Luther wants you to do the rest of the album. And I was like, wow, really? He goes, yeah, he, yeah, he really likes what you're doing and everything. So I said, oh, man. So I thanked him. And Luther was, of course, very low-key. You know, he was like, oh, yeah, no, sure, man. That's great. You know, we'll, you know we'll, 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 we'll get it going in New York. And then I ended up going out to L.A. and finishing the album with them out there. Because, you know, these records, you know, with Luther, they're very meticulous, they have to be. You know, you'd be All very right. wait, meticulous. I wanna, wait, Jason, this is so amazing. I want to slow down for a minute because I know a lot of fans out there are wanting to know, what came first? Was it the track? Um, from from a Marcus Miller or Nat or or Skip Anderson uh, Skip Anderson in in, um, in relationship to the the song with Gregory Hines or was it Luther with a melody or a lyric like when you would when you're talking that, about like I'm not sure I'm not sure about that but I, I'm, what I'm what I'm sure is that Skip had the track Nat had Nat had the music they had an idea of what they wanted to do. And I think the song was done already by the time we got to Montserrat. Not done, I mean done written. He knew what he had to do because they had the arrangement all laid out. Everything was all laid out. And, you know, there wasn't, this, this, this was from a place of like making sure that the rhythm tracks were really together. Because he had Paul Jackson Jr. there and Doc Powell 
and Marcus, myself, Nat, you know, we had to make sure that, 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 that those tracks were ready to go back to the U.S. And, you know, one of the reasons why he had us all there was that he wanted to get it done. He didn't want anybody, uh, you know, making phone calls or taking radio registry or doing jingles, you know, so he put us all in one place where we couldn't go anywhere, you know. And, um, you also and, and talk that, a little bit about, in the articles you've written about this experience, and you have like three wonderful uh, articles on the, your, give me, your experience regarding this one album, Give Me the Reason, mm-hmm. you talk about Luther singing one of the songs like at uh, 2 a.m. in the morning. Yep, I yep. Think anyone who had a heart. Anyone, yep. anyone who had a heart. Yep. Uh, was that yeah, common? Anyway, I, I'll never forget that. Court at 2 o'clock in the morning? No. But we were in Montserrat. What else were we going to do? <laughs> you know, you know, go back to the room, go to sleep, get up, come back to the studio, eat, swim, play ping pong, record, you know. I mean, that was, you well, know, that, I, I that was a thing. Um, since you mentioned earlier about how you were able to help speed up some of the recording process by using oh, yeah. the synthesizer, yeah. just yeah. wondering, was Luther kind of by the book in the studio, or was he... Would he, did he come in and have totally have the ideas and you knew there was a playbook that day or was it kind of no. loose and it happened as it happened? Well, I think the core of knowing what had to be done, the core was known what had to be done. But as far as like us knowing what sounds we were using and everything, they left that to me, you know, like, you know, you know like, you know, uh, Nat said, you know, in the typical Nat fashion, bass, moody bass, move kind of bass. But when I said, okay, but you know, everybody's doing that. Let me see what I can come up with. And then they came up with that synth part and everything. And they're going, oh yeah. This is happening. And we kind of took it in piecemeal like that, you know. Once we finished that part, then we went to the next part with, with the keyboards and everything, you know. And uh, once we got that track basically tight, then we just put it away and went to another one. Because then we come back to the U.S. and we would do the rest of the overdubs and everything. The idea was to come back with the tracks for the record done, you know. And then all the overdubs done in, you know, in New York and L.A. and everything with the vocals and all the singers and everything. You know, that's what happened then. But I'll tell you what was really interesting was, you know, when uh, when we came into the studio and Luther's talking to Nat about the string arrangements and everything, you know, and Luther said to me, uh, to, you know, Jason, can you give us some, like, kind of strings that we could just put over there? We can have it until the arrangements. We have it together for the string guys and everything. They said, yeah, let's go do it. So when I did it and everything like that, Luther said to me, um, Luther said to me, can you excuse us for a second? I, I, I want to talk to Marcus about this. You know, just, Jason, give us a, 10 minutes. So I went into the lounge and everything. I came back and he goes, yeah, Luca wants you. I went and he goes, you can make strings like that? And I said, yeah, I'm making strings. And then he goes, I want you to do the strings on the whole album, and I'll pay you like I paid the string section. And I went, really? And he goes, yeah, you, you do that kind of stuff? And I go, yeah. And he goes, let's go do that. And, 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 he, said, and, he, said, uh, and he said, Jason, you're hired. You, you, you string mofo, you know what he said, mother, you know, you're fired. <laughs> you know, it was like, they weren't even there, but it was kind of like, we're going to get this rocking. And he was able to sit there and meticulously go over this stuff and fix stuff and everything. And that's what he liked. He liked being able to be able to say, can you do this? Yes, we can do this. Oh, great. Let's do it like that. And, you know, and it, and, and it kind of kept on advancing with him knowing more of what we could do with what I had, you know. And, and and by the time we got to, you know, the records down the road, he was very comfortable with it. And he would say to me, man, I love your stuff, but it doesn't sound like a big accordion, you know. I want to ask you um, probably a silly question, but 
What is Please. the difference between over? You mentioned this overdubbing and multi-track. Like, is what is the difference between that? Those two terms, a multi-track, okay. multi-track or, or okay, okay, right. Multi-track is like you're recording all of these parts at the same time. Okay, you have the band in the studio, and you can do like drums, bass, guitar, keyboards. You know, whatever you want on back then on a reel of twenty-four track, two-inch tape. You record it, that's where you're, you're making your tracks, okay? Then overdubbing is like you're in the studio, there's, you know, maybe something, and you're going and you're playing now the various parts that need to be done to the tracks that have been already recorded. That's overdubbing. Okay. And, um, well, Thank and, you and basically we did a lot of that. Um, so now, like, let's go back, because I was reading the article about you. You said when you first met Luther in Antigua, he was – Thin and wearing a Johnny Versace shirt, and he had said to you, "Marcus says you're the best, Jason, and I'm really going to need your help because I want to put on some. I want some big hits on the album." So, uh, you met Luther as Thin. You heard me talking to Jeff James earlier about kind of his weight fluctuation. Mm-hmm. I would assume mm-hmm. after working with him for ten years, you saw a lot of those fluctuations. Can you oh, talk to that? Yeah, a yeah. It's, 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 it's painful, man. You know what I mean? Let's let's talk the truth. You know what I mean? Luther, you know, Luther, when he, Luther, you know, with Luther, there was sometimes when he was, a couple of them, he was too thin, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, Ray would always go, he should be 210, 210 pounds, perfect, and Luther would say, you know, Luther, I, I want to get down to 178 or something like that, but what, Luther, you're six foot two, you're a big guy, man, you know, and, you know, you know, food, Food was something that never argued with him. It didn't call him back. It didn't call him on the phone asking him for money. It didn't do anything. It just made him happy. And, you know, he took it sometimes to the extreme because uh, that, you know, people think that it's like really great. Oh, he's a superstar. Is this, is that, this down, this, this, you know, man, there's a downside that comes with that as well, you know? And, and, and not everybody, go ahead. I'm sorry. Did the diets affect his mood in the recording? Oh, Absolutely. Of course. Well, you know, how, how would you feel if you're, like, drinking Oprah shakes and everybody's eating food from, you know, uh, Dot Tommaso, you know what I mean? I mean, it's hard. It's hard on him, man, you know? And, uh, um, and, and uh, I just, you know, I just, I, I just kind of cooled it, you know. Like most of the times when I was there, we'd eat, you know, separately maybe, you know. We, we wouldn't all eat dinner together and everything. But, um, you know, yeah, it was, it, there's, there's no doubt about it. That was it. That's the Achilles heel right over there. And, uh, and, 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 and it was tough, you know. It was tough. But the whole thing is, you know, when he was thinner, he felt better. His back felt better. He didn't have the diabetes thing going on. You know what I mean? He had, didn't have a headache. didn't have this. He was always, you know, he, he, he was in a much better vibe. He was also able to wear the clothes that he wanted to wear, you know. But all of a sudden, you know, something happened. Now, let's face it, you and I both know that for a number of years in the 90s that he was at a very steady weight for a long time, you know? He was at a very oh, steady weight for a yeah. long time. He started exercising, and, and, and I think that made a big difference from like you are talking about, and I'm going to be talking to Patricia Addy Gentle a little bit later about what you just mentioned about the liquid diet. And, uh, you know, when I met him after in 93 and around 95 when mm-hmm. he became his assistant, he asked me how I maintained my weight, and that's when I turned him on to doing a step aerobics because I thought he would like the idea of the choreography with the workout, which worked mm-hmm. for him, and he mm-hmm. was successful because of, because of that. But before, prior to that, 
it was really about restriction, restriction, and like you said, the liquid diet. Now, I wanted to oh, get yeah. back to like, what, what do you think sure. this album meant to him? Since he told you he wanted hits, and technically you did deliver hits. So what did this album, you know, after you recorded it, you go on and you're working with Luther. I'm just wondering, like, was it a monkey on your back? Was it like the beginning of the Jeff Seal? Not at all. You guys tired? How did you, how did you look mm-hmm. at this album? I looked at the album that, like, you know, I had a good opportunity here, man, you know, to work with a superstar, and I wanted to deliver what I could for him. And I was totally, totally had the ability to do it. I knew I had the ability to do it, you know, because I've been working, I've been working with synthesizers at that point for 12 years, you know. So when, you know, it was, you know when, uh, when, when we did I think it was much, I think it was much harder to find a space for Miles Davis when we did Tutu to find out what that really was was to create a, a pop album for Luther because with Luther, the songs were there. He had the idea for the songs. Now it was just a matter of about how we were going to craft them to make them so they would be more accessible to pop radio, you know, and not just R&B radio. And, you know, we kind of nailed it because, you know, back then, back then when you see there was a lot of synth pop happening. You know, the Pointer Sisters had done the jump, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff was happening. He wanted some of that. As a matter of fact, you know, there's like a song on uh, – on, um, you know, give me the reason. I, 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 I really didn't mean it, okay? That was the song. You know, Luther just said, I want this, like, you know, the, the hot club hits, man. I want the hot club hits. I want to get, like, you know, a song like, like, like that. So basically all that song is, is like me and Marcus and, uh, and you know, uh, Paul Jackson Jr. maybe, you know? But everything else was done because he wanted songs like that that could be played in clubs, that could be gotten remixes of, you know? They were right in there with the very most modern of the music. That's what he wanted, and that's what he felt that I was, I brought him that I was going to bring him into the modern stage of like, you know, the hippest stuff happening with the keyboards and MIDI and all the synth stuff and everything. He wanted that. And, uh, you know, that reflected it in, in those records and everything like that. And the whole thing is what was beautiful about it was that the material was really good. And we were able to go at that point, especially on albums like any love and everything, we were able to go and, you know, take this, what I was doing to the max to add it in, with the song quality that they had and everything. And that's what I think was a really great combination, was that he had the material. Because let's face it, I mean, Stop to Love, you forget about everything, that's a great song, you know? That's a great song. So when you have a great song, it's much easier to go and to say, oh, well, we can make this happen, man, rather than all of a sudden I'm fishing around trying to figure something out. And whenever that happened to me on a session, when I was fishing around or something, you know why? Because it always came to my mind, the song just ain't that good. You know, and uh, they're trying to make me do something that I can just do to take to a certain place. I can't make your song a better song. I can make it a better production, but I can't make it a better song. And so when you come in here and you hear a song like Stop. That's the perfect introduction for our final question, Jason, about the power of love. Because in a recent interview I saw, you were talking about the time and effort that went into uh, recording Power of Love, which is also celebrating an anniversary this year. I know it's not on the Give Me the Reason album, but I would love to ask you to tell sure. us a little bit about uh, the work you did on po- The Power of Love. It was, the, it was the longest, one of the longest albums I ever worked on. And, 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 and to, to Luther, I always say this, man, you know what I mean? Because I always thank him for this, man. He gave me a raise. I made freaking amazing amount of money on that, you know, and the reality was, was that he had to come up with something, because, you know, we had just done Here and Now, where do you go after that, you know what I mean, you know, that was a freaking monster hit, you know what I mean, 
But what happened was that, you know, the interesting thing about, about the Power of Love was that Power of Love wasn't cut till the end of the record almost because we had all these great songs. You know, we had Don't Want to Be a Fool, Start Today. Skip had his songs. Hubert Eve sent them. So we had the song from Nat that we had started a year earlier. And, you know, but we were all sitting around and Luther would just thought, I don't know if I've got that hit. I don't know if I've got that big hit. We need that. We need to figure it out. And that's what Marcus said. You know, I'm going to get a drum kit in here, man. And let me go butts around with some grooves because we wanted to go and make something unique. And we made something unique where the bass isn't even in the song for the first half of the song. It's all based around that keyboard pad. And that's when Luther said to me, you know, he goes, look, man, I need to be singing this song. I want to be floating on clouds. The angels are like circling me. The love angels are all up there, man. I want I'm singing on a bed of, of, of cloud and the sky is blue. That's what I want it to sound like. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, no problem, you know. So, I mean, you know, it took it took a while to go and a lot of tweaking and a lot of stuff going on to get that. But, you know, the, the key to it was once we got it, that's when the real vibe of the song started because we cut the track six different times, you know, because, because you know, there wasn't enough time in the beginning to think, well, it's right. Well, we cut the track and then you come back in and you go, you know what, what? I think it's too fast. What are we going to do? We've got to cut this part again. You know what I mean? Then we would do it. Then we come in and he said, you know what, man? I didn't give myself enough room at the end of the tune, man, for that fade. I need longer time. Got to go in and cut it again, you know? And then there was like, you know, that, that, then there was another thing. We need to extend that part a little more, you know? Okay, we'll do that. Then we're working on digital now. We're working on digital tape now at that point. So it was a little easier to uh, uh, to do some of this. But, you know, we that, that song was a monumental task. The, the whole album was a monumental task. It really, really was. I mean, the maximum effort was put into that record, man. We, we were all out in L.A. for months, you know, and we were working every day, man, you know, six days a week, 14 hours a day on that. Very meticulous work with Luther. You had to understand that if you couldn't be meticulous, you were at the wrong place because he liked everything, like where it should be and how it should be on there. And, you know, you got, you just got, another not used to it, because I was always after trying to give people perfection all the time. And, and, and I had to do that because that, that's what happens, you know, when you do synthesizers, everybody's looking for like, well, you know, nobody wants to use synthesizers, but everybody wants to use synthesizers. And so, you know, uh, you have to go and you have to kind of prove your worth with that, man, because it was voodoo in a lot of ways. We do like magic act because it's so, and it's so different than it is now. Now, now they got it so easy, it's ridiculous. Back then, we were like, you know, man, calling the witch doctor in there to help us make some of this stuff work and everything. It's, it's incredible because, you know, all of the fans, including myself, listen to the records and just think, um, I don't know what we think. I don't know what people think that it happens with magic, but it's, it's incredible to just hear the work and um, also just the joy and passion in your voice about reflecting on Luther. So I just I want oh, to yeah. thank you for joining us tonight, uh, Jason pleasure. Miles. And just, celebrating his legacy in this way. It's been incredible. And, and that was such a, a real treat for people to go inside the studio with you. I hope you're able to join us for another okay. podcast soon. Whenever, well, man. You know, but we miss Luther, man. I mean, you know, the, the, the scene is not the same without, with, without him. He made, people, he made people have to be better than what they were, singers I'm talking about. He kept them honest. You know, you didn't hear no vocal histrionics or anything from Luther. You heard the freaking song, and that's what he sang. And his interpretation obviously touched a lot of hearts, man. That, that that's not happening now, because you know there was no. Look, I've seen yeah, I've seen women go crazy over Luther at restaurants and places like that. You know, he touched people. He really did. 
and there's nobody out there now for real that can go and, and match him. There may never be anybody that can ever do that, you know. But I'll just Absolutely. tell you this. I'll leave you with this. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I got there, okay, and, and I'm proud of this. I got there, and, and we're talking about you. They can't play Radio City. A year after I got there, he was in Madison Square Garden. So I would say it was mission accomplished, you know. Absolutely, you did it. I I love that. All right, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna segue to Thank more you, music. Man. Thank you, Jacob, Jason Miles. Let's listen to anyone who had a heart, courtesy of Sony Music. This is Luther. Yeah, yeah. Anyone who ever loved could look at me and know that I love you. Anyone who ever could look at me and know I dream of you, knowing I love you so. Anyone who had a heart would take me in her arms and love me. Entertainer Chuck Flowers, who performs regularly at some amazing venues in St. Louis, is joining us to he- share his singer's perspective on how Luther performed countless cover songs, including that classic, Anyone Who Had a Heart. Please welcome Chuck Flowers to the show. Hi, Chuck. Hey, Max. How you doing? Uh, hey. Great. Thank you for joining us. You know, I've been following you all over Facebook. I know you're a huge Luther fan, but you are also an incredible entertainer in your own right performing regularly Thank down you. there in St. Louis in places like the Blue Strawberry. Yes. So what's it been yeah. like for you to come back on stage after COVID? Just to give, I'm just curious, uh, what's it like for an entertainer to be performing with some of the restrictions? Uh, does it make it, is it's, it difficult to have less people in the room? How, what's the feeling for you? It's interesting. Um, uh to the venues that I sing at, um, I commend them because you know changing it, changing capacity was a was you know it kind of hit us, but still we have those places to perform. So it's uh, it's just been kind of steady even through COVID. You know what I'm saying? There was a part where they weren't open, and then when they came back, they came back with a vengeance. So it's like, but still safe environments. Capacity change, so that's all. Uh, but I like intimate crowds. I can I can do it. I dig it. <laughs> well, you dig Luther. So tell me, did Luther impact you in any way as a performer? Oh my God, yes. Luther's Luther. I, I would uh, joke and say Luther is a, is a technician. That boy could say he he knew just what to do with his voice. He knew just he knew his voice. He used it all up. He used it all up. And what what really got me into Luther was I followed him very early on, never too much album and before. You know, uh, everybody look around, you know, rejoice, all that. So all through the Quincy Jones days with uh, 
stuff like that album and him and Patty Austin and even his group Luther. So I, I followed him all the way through. And what I loved about Luther was his, his great vocal technique and phrasing and style and then also his background vocal arrangements. That was everything. That was just everything. So there you have it on that. As a non-singer, like, what is vocal technique? Is it breathing? Is it tone? Is it how I use my mouth? I mean, I, I don't sing aside from the shower, which my neighbors don't like. <laughs> okay. I mean, what, when you say that, like, what, is, what am I supposed to take away? What would I be, what would a non-singer be listening for to say, oh, there's technique? I wouldn't know what, I, I feel like Jennifer Lopez on American Idol. I won't say that he used so much technique. It was just his own Luther style, period. And he knew his voice. He knew, um, what did I say, uh, uh, Luther's tone was so nice. His phrasing was nice. His, um, the little nuances, you know, the, it's, it's some of the little things he did. But he, uh, great airy tones in his, in his upper register, you know. But, eh, just one of a kind singer. All right, so know. let's talk a little bit about his um, interpretation, since you do so many yourself. With uh, You have an acoustic soul uh, group down there, and you're also going to be doing a salute to Donny Hathaway. So, you know, yes. you just heard me talking about Jeff James and, and Jason Miles. They both reference uh, Dionne Warwick and So Amazing, as well as Anyone Who Had a Heart, which we just played. So Luther Vandross idolized Dionne Warwick, and now... I'm sure he wore this record out. Is that something you would do? Would you go after a record? To, would you cover a song that you just absolutely love by another artist? I feel like I would be so intimidated to cover one of my icons and one of their songs, but apparently Luther wasn't. So I just want to get, like, what's the mentality behind how someone uh, in entertainment such as yourself chooses material to cover? Um, for me... The song has to speak to me. It has to speak to either a situation in my life. It has to speak about love, uh, love gained, love lost, uh, uh, great love when things are going good. It's just that um, the song has to speak to me, whether whatever it is. It has to speak to situations in my life, and it has to speak to that part of uh, I've been there before kind of thing, or I see that, or I get the point of what this song is saying. And you love the truth of it and what it's telling and what the writer intended. That's me. Well, now, people seem to love both of the renditions. So I'm curious, like, when you listen to De how you would compare Dion's version versus Luther's version of Anyone Who Had a Heart. On, on Anyone Who Had a Heart, yeah, you're looking at two different things. I love them both. I can't really say anything because you're looking at a Bert Bacharach uh, thing, which was exquisite. Then you're looking at Luther bringing it up to date and putting what he did on it. You know what I mean? So it's kind of hard to say either is. I just love them both with respect to 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 the the treatment of the material. Yeah, uh, of course I love anyone. I had heart the original. That's what I first heard. That's what I grew up on. But then you're looking at a, a, a whole tempo thing, which was of that day. But then Luther made it so very smooth in R&B now, very quiet storm, very, very plain. He made the story plain, <laughs> as he knows what to do, you know. 
I would think like when he you told, strip he down told, a song told, like you do he told when the story. you do your he told the story. And and so Chuck, I'm, I was gonna say like when you when you strip back a song like you do with your acoustic soul group in St. Louis, is it harder to do that than to have a very full arrangement? Like, you know, when you start pulling back on the sound and taking things away, does that put pressure on you as a vocalist or is that something you enjoy? Oh, not at all. I love it. I enjoy every moment of it. Every moment. This is why, you know, I came together with this group. Of course, I have a four-piece band, but when I pull together this group, this is a, this is uh, musicians that are, are, are like minded and want to do all types of music. So uh, I love it. I have no problem with it. And now um, I'm just curious about how does your health affect your singing? You know, because people will talk about Luther and say, "Oh, thinner Luther is different sounding than bigger Luther." I'm, I don't know any of your personal history, but I'm just curious. Does you, do you? Does the way you feel about your health or how you how you're feeling at the time affect how you sound? I, I I won't say that. I know that rest is good for the voice. And as far as anything else, uh, as far as Luther, as far as weight, I don't think weight has anything to do with your voice. That's now that's my opinion. I'm sure there are more experts out there that may disagree with me. I may not. I may not know everything, but I don't think that weight really affects your voice. Um, I know it probably will affect your breathing. I know that, and how you hold notes and stuff like that. So um, it may, you know, maybe that thing. But you know, sure. I love it. Okay, to wrap it up, as because you're the Luther fan tonight on this podcast. What is your favorite song, video, memory of Luther Vandross that has made you continue to re- go back and listen to his music this many years after his passing back in 2005? What brings me back to his stuff is stuff like uh, You Stop Loving Me, songs like that. It, it's uh, the background arrangement, the, the feel of the song, the lyric, the way he did it, the way he told the story, uh, how well how well done it was. So there are just songs through his career that touch me in so many different ways, depending on my mood or my emotion or what I'm feeling. It, if it's happy, then it's this. If it's sad, it's that. If it's even middle of the road, it's always some good Luther to find to, to, to feed your spirit, to feed that music urge or that music thing that you, that you need it, you know? No, I love it. I agree. I absolutely agree. Well, thank you, Chuck Flowers, for joining the tribute podcast to Luther tonight. We appreciate it so much. Now, thank you for uh, inviting me on. And, you know, that, you mentioned that, earlier. Oh, and you mentioned earlier, Chuck, that you covered our next song. So I guess we're going to have to go to St. Louis to hear your rendition of this song. But uh, we've been talking about this version all night. Luther actually wrote this song. He produced it for Dionne Warwick. And then on his yes. Jimmy the Reason album, he took it back and he performed So Amazing. So let's listen to So Amazing, courtesy of Sony Music. Love
Welcome back to our annual tribute podcast to Luther Vandross. I'm your host, Mr. David Bedick. What a thrill. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, this would be the anniversary of Luther's 70th birthday this year. And because of that, his niece, Savita Williams, uh, and her organization called Vandross has been releasing these rare concert videos, vintage videos of Luther on stage uh, for every and sharing it with the fans, and you can check out all those videos either at fandross.com, that's fandross with an F, or on YouTube, Google Fandross. And my next guest has been popping up in these videos all the time, <laughs> and I'm just so happy to have her. She is um, a featured background vocalist for Luther Vandross. She's worked with the Rolling Stones, Chaka Khan, Tina Turner, Nine Inch Nails, Sting, and many, many more. Plus, she was featured in the 2013. Best documentary, Oscar-winning film, 20 Feet from Stardom, and Never Looks Back. Here, welcome to the show, my friend, Lisa Fisher. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Max. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. Thank you so much for making time tonight to celebrate Luther's legacy with us. I appreciate it so much. It's my pleasure. Uh, What is it like to see yourself in all these videos that Savita's been posting? I mean... I, I know last weekend they just posted a video with um, If Only for One Night and Creepin', and you are you and Kevin Owens and Ava Cherry are strongly featured in Creepin', doing some amazing choreography. What is that like to see that? It's so interesting, especially when we're talking about weight and health and all that kind of thing. I mean, on the on the bright and happy career side it's like you don't see you don't get a chance to see yourself the way an audience member would see you because you're so in your body and in your own concerns about getting everything right so you know we have eyeballs set in our face in a particular way so that we don't see ourselves so I don't think we're really meant to so we get to see ourselves kind of through the eyes of other people and, and, and the look on their face. So it was interesting to be able to see it almost like an audience member, like watching this, I guess it would be considered slightly vintage footage. And, and I was just like, wow, we worked so hard, but it looked so simple. But there was a lot of work that went into it. And then there's the darker side. There's the side that knows during that time period how I was struggling with my own weight and was bulimic and taking diet pills and doing whatever it is I could do to fit into these outfits because, well, I didn't want to disappoint myself and I definitely didn't want to disappoint Luther, you know, because he spent so much money on these clothes. And so, you know, there was that side of it. And, you know, being on the road so long, uh, you don't really take a minute, or at least I didn't take a minute to deal with my own dysmorphia about my body and just my habits and what I should be doing versus what I was doing. So it was really interesting. Wow, I just appreciate your honesty with that. I, I do want to I, I want to talk about that because I don't think people understand that he did spend thousands of dollars on garments for you and and. Alpha and Ava and Kevin and Cindy and Paulette and Brenda and, and Palacy and the idea that it was one size and you know you may wear that gown uh, in '93 but then you might come I mean you might have worn it in '85 but then you have to come back and try to put it on in '89 or '92. Hello. And so you know five <laughs> years later 
it, it was that, there is a lot of pressure, right? I mean, you, you just said it, but I mean, I think uh, try, for people to try to understand like what it's like to have to put an outfit back on five years later at a different mm-hmm. time in your life. And like you said, you were traveling nonstop. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. you could commit to some kind of uh, plan. So what was that like too, Lisa, just to be on the road and trying to manage your health with that kind of schedule? It's crazy because, you know, basically we were doing the bus tour in the early stages of the tour um, and and throughout. But, you know, it would be truck stops. And, you know, it's my first major tour. And, you know, when I first uh, started, I wasn't really concerned about weight. I never thought about my weight, you know. Uh, I was just naturally sort of thin during that time, so it wasn't a big deal. But a couple of truck stops and tours later, my behind was like, woo! <laughs> you know, all hours of the night and just all that kind of stuff. And, and there was a celebration and eating and sharing a meal and tasting things that other people would say, try this and taste that. You never had this. Try half one of these, you know. And so it was, um, you know, the beauty of getting together and sharing and breaking bread with your musical brothers and sisters and talking and laughing and having this sort of uh, family experience uh, was beautiful, but I really needed to pull away from from a lot of that because I was just going crazy. Yeah, because it, it, it really did create a safe environment for everyone. And I want to yeah. talk to this kind of, you know, when you look at that picture of yourself, the goddesses you were, you know, you're in these $1,000 beaded gowns, which weighed like 20 to 30 pounds easily. You have this big hair. You know, it's like... <laughs> vision of you did i mean talk a little bit about how that vision was created because when you look at those videos you could see that uh at the concert footage i'm talking about everyone you could see he had a different a definite idea of how he saw you and alpha and ava specifically were you involved in those conversations and i know tony chase was doing the costumes at that time how did that evolution how did that happen can you take us behind the scenes on that yeah, I mean, for me, because I was so, it was all so new for me, I would see these sketches uh, that Tony Chase would do. And, you know, for each each girl, and Luther was just so happy to share those visions and all the work that he put into it, having discussions with Tony and what he saw and what he envisioned for each girl, skin tone, uh, height, um, and he also took into um, consideration what your uh, good points were and the things that you wanted to hide. So the lines would be a particular way, a particular way. Like for me, I was always kind of like self-conscious about my belly. And so they would always make sure to have lines that work that would sort of shave off uh, the weight visually so that I could kind of perform comfortably in my skin. Um, but it still was very um, just extravagant and gorgeous and detailed. Um, but I loved, he talked about Erte a lot and just those lines. And I always think about like ballet or ballerinas and just the lines of how things look, especially up close and from a distance, but definitely for the audience, you know. Yeah. 
yeah, it was definitely all from Luther, all from Luther, because he, you know, he never was going to do anything that he didn't believe in, that he didn't support. You know, he was just like, yeah, I want this and that. Alphonse, you know, I want her hair to be this color, and you know, it's just, it was beautiful. It was beautiful, and he had fun doing it. You know. Well, I think it was. It had to be so empowering to see an artist put that, invest that much in himself. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. he, I mean, talk to that for a minute because he invested not only his time and his talent, but his money into these shows to entertain yeah. fans. Yeah, he really did. I mean, I remember, um, I think Budweiser at one point was sponsoring uh, the tour, but I didn't always get the impression that all the tours were sponsored. And so, you know, each outfit was not only an investment for getting the audience members to come back, it was really an investment for his career um, his excellence. Um, yeah, I mean, he could have done things really inexpensively, but he just was not that guy. He was not that guy. He could tell his eye was just so precise. The weight of the clothing, um, how things felt, um, the richness of color. Um, yeah, and also to... It wasn't like we were going to wear these clothes and then toss them away a year later. You know what I mean? Because some tours you would, you know, do that. You're like, okay, we did that. We're not going to, you know, use that again. But this, he was building an empire of clothing. Like I remember the big ball gowns were, it was like building a, a building, you know. We had the hoops, which were made of metal. And then um, poor Ava Cherry was um, getting scarred on her waist. Her skin was really soft and very uh, sensitive. Not sensitive, but like, you know, just soft. And so you got these heavy um, metal, mm, what do you call the, the, the undergarment, the, those hoops, the hoops Ooh. underneath. That was my first and, tour in 93. Yeah, yeah. And then you remember how they eventually switched it to uh, a plastic it would be. We the plastic because it that it was. You guys were you and Ava were those hoop skirts. I know this perfectly, and they like you said they had metal, but the weight yeah. of those dresses was so heavy that they collapsed the hoop. So people have to think like a, a fifty pound dress going on top of a hoop and just collapsing mm. it. So I came. That was my first tour with Luther. I came from a regional theater called American Conservatory in San Francisco that rented costumes. I knew there was a mm. regional theater in Minneapolis where we started, and it's, I believe it's the Guthrie. And so we called the Guthrie, and this is perfect. Uh, people will love, fans will love this. They were doing a production of Sesame Street. So you're wondering, like, how does Sesame Street relate to Luther, aside from that he was in the first episode? Big Bird right. has in his costume. So they said, oh, we have, we're using these plastic tubes to do the hoops for uh, Big Bird. You should do it, too. So we ran over there. They sent us the hoops, and we traded out the hoops, and they were able to sustain the weight of your gowns for that tour. Yes, yes. I do remember. I mean, oh, maybe I could so be remembering that I could remember that. Yeah. yeah. But Lisa, yeah. we should tell everyone to get back to this point. Like you, So after that, you would come off stage, and then you would put on the Herbie Legere dress, 
and go back out and nail how can I ease the pain. So, you know, when we when you were mentioning earlier about the weight thing, you come out of the ball gown and now you're in that Herbie Leger was those bands of elastic, you know, right? Like mm. 25 bands mm. of elastic. Uh, how does that feel? I mean, just to get back to, like, where the pressure comes from yourself or from the audience or whatever, when it comes to music, it's true that there's a lot of outside pressure on how you look. Yeah, no, it was interesting. I remember going to Bergdorf's in in uh, New York City, and Luther took me shopping. He took me shopping to to you know because he spent all this money on his clothes and all his stuff was like you know ten twenty thousand dollars gowns and all this stuff. So you know I'm just starting out, and and he he was just so gracious and so kind. He bought me two, no three actually, one in red one in white and one in black so that it would match and go with the show, with his show. And um, they were like between 10,000, 10, 7 to 10,000 per dress, I think. And he just had no problem spending the money and, and making sure that, one, it fit in with his vision of his show but still was different enough so that, I could still be fabulous, and the show is fabulous, you know. And um, he, it was, it was. Uh, I remember when I went to try on the dress. It took two people to get me in it because they had these elastic bands were so. Um, it was beyond a girdle. Let's put it that way. It's kind of like if you can imagine a girdle being four or five times as thick and having some cotton in it as well. It was kind of like this combination of, I don't even know what other kind of material it was, but, um, and, and the zipper had to be really, really secure because you can't bust out of it, but it would sort of accentuate the waist, which was perfect for me, and then it would kind of boost up the, you know, the breast area and kind of let your butt kind of you know, have a nice shape and it was just well made. It was really well made. So when I got in it, <laughs> when I finally got in it, I was just like, wow, I felt like Cinderella. <laughs> it was beautiful. No, it was beautiful I mean, experience. for everyone in the audience, you look like Cinderella. I mean, it was just so, <laughs> I remember every good chills when you would go out there because that show was in the round and it was just amazing. Mm. I'm just wondering, though, as we wrap up, like, because at the same time in your life, you were working with the Rolling Stones or, or just beginning, you know, you left to go after that tour to do the Stones. What was that like? I mean, as far as being a woman entertain, a backing vocalist, like the the difference between like a Luther Vandross and a Rolling Stones, was it the same? Or I'm just curious, again, with how, where that, how you would put that mm. into perspective. Mm. Mm-hmm. What well, Luther gave um, you that you didn't get there, or how you look at it, you know, what, like how that how that played together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. It would be I would do Luther's tour, and I'd done it for some years at that point. By the time I auditioned for the Stones, because actually Tony Tony King, who was a publicist for the Stones, came to a Luther show, and that's how he found me to call me to audition for the Stones. So by that time, I was already kind of in the Luther mode where you can be sexy without being trashy, right? Uh, Classy and sensual and that whole thing. Every movement, 
you knew exactly where your head was going to be, your pinky, your toes, your, your focus, just everything was well-oiled and well-rehearsed. And I was so happy that I had that as a foundation because it gave me a sense of, of safety and a sense of well-being. Um, so when I auditioned for the Stones, um, I was just so excited. I got the gig, and it would always end up for years that, you know, Luther would be working, the Stones would be off. Then the Stones would be working, and Luther would be off. And it went on like that for years. And then one year I had to make a decision, and I talked to Luther about it. And he said, no, do you think? But it is different in the sense that the show is a lot, the Stone show is a lot looser. It brings me, it makes me think of Tina Turner. And I, I believe Tina was actually helping teaching Mick how to dance and doing certain steps and things like that. So, you know, a lot of, um, of American uh, R&B, rock, soul, rhythm and blues, blues is all up in the stone. So there was um, a bridge for me um, emotionally. And then um, having Bernard Fowler as a, as a vocal kind of confidant and teacher, he would kind of help me to sing looser because I was so studio trained and um, there was a looseness to the stones that I wasn't accustomed to. And so Bernard was really great with kind of just helping me relax and finding that space. So it was really um, a beautiful experience, but definitely two different worlds, but there were threads between the two that made it an easier transition. Wow. I'm just so glad you were able to join us tonight. <laughs> There's so many more things I wanted to talk to you about. I could listen to, I'm sure everyone could listen to you all night. And I know you're going to be performing again live soon, so I'm sure people will love to hear that soon and visit Lisa Fisher's website. But Lisa, thank you so much. We're going to um, uh, thank you, and we're going to, we're going to play this song in your honor because I know you're featured in that video that was on VH1 and MTV in the back of a truck driving around the streets of L.A. When they would get to a red light, you and Luther would say, stop and, uh, for love. Right? Yeah. <laughs> stop for love. It's courtesy of Sony Music with Luther Vandross. Thank you, Lisa Fisher. Enjoy your night. Thank That's you, Max. I love song. you. Bye. I love you, too. I just wanna be the one that you wanna see. I just wanna. 
reliving all those memories. I can't believe I got paid to watch Lisa Fisher perform every night. That was seriously a thrill, everyone. She's incredible. All right, I'm, we're going to bring this podcast home with our very own Patricia Addy Gentle. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Max. How are you? I'm doing great. This has been so wonderful to walk down memory lane and talk about Luther. And throughout the podcast, we've been talking about the weight issues. I'm just curious, uh, since you've been listening in, what what are some of your what have been some of the thoughts going through your head tonight? I have been enlightened. I um, am keenly aware of people and their self-image and how uh, weight has a great impact, but not so much as to, like when I'm listening at Lisa talk about the um, costumes or uh, the outfits that were purchased and the price of them and how, you know, you don't want to disappoint yourself. But then the person who invested so much money into this, um, you know, for this venue, and then if if you, you reuse it maybe even six months later, what do you do if you've gained weight? So it's really been uh, enlightening for me because I never looked at it from such a broad perspective. Yes, and, you know, like uh, Jason Miles brought up this thing that, you know, he did have, going back to Luther now, he had mood swings in and out of um, when he was gaining and losing weight. And like I said at the top of the show, you know, he admitted that, Luther Vandross admitted, by the way, I'm sorry, everybody, uh, eight to nine times during his lifetime he lost and gained 110 pounds. That would be so self-defeating to me. I mean, I know that it was for him because I worked for him, but, I mean, you work with patients all the time. There's so much pressure put on people, specifically with either prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, that the magic pill is weight loss. Do you think that has any kind of negative impact on patients? It definitely has a negative impact because it forces a person to feel that weight loss is the answer. Well, it it makes them get in that routine of thinking that weight loss will put an end to diabetes. You know, I no longer have it. I'm not diagnosed with diabetes any longer. I even listened to a... um, one of the videos where Luther was being interviewed by Brian Gomble, and he mentioned that now that he's lost the weight, he no longer has diabetes. Um, I was at a, uh, heard Patti LaBelle at a performance for diabetes educators, and she mentioned that she was planning to lose weight because she wanted to be like her friend Luther, who had lost weight and no longer was diagnosed with diabetes. And, yes, I think that myth plants a seed in so many uh, mindsets that if I lose the weight, I won't have diabetes any longer. And that is so far from the truth. So Why? Yeah, we, Why? we hear that all the time. That's like... I hear that more than I hear Luther Vandross on. So why why would that not be true? It's not true because diabetes is a metabolic uh, condition, and yes, weight loss is a way of managing diabetes, but it's not a cure. It's not um, uh, just a, a one and and you're done. You lose this weight and you no longer have it. And I like to refer to it. When I'm teaching patients, I like to refer to it as um, looking at grass 
as it grows in the spring or in the summer and in the winter is dormant, but the seeds and the undergirding of that grass is still there. And once conditions are favorable again with the rain, with the heat, with the moisture in the soil and all of that, you'll see the grass spring forward. And so it's not like the grass is gone, it's eradicated. It's not like diabetes has left or been eradicated. It's just that conditions are no longer favorable to have those high blood sugars because you've lost weight, you're eating differently, you have changed the way that you probably, most people who lose weight are eating differently as well as exercising or doing a lot of different things to lose the weight. If they maintain the weight loss, yes, they will have good numbers or a good management of their diabetes. But as soon as they're eating and going back to those old habits, they will see those numbers increase again. So blood sugars are not, um, it, it's not that diabetes is, is gone. You're in, you can't even say you're in remission, but you are doing things that are favorable to keep your numbers in better control. Well, I, I I I agree with what you're saying, but I also see how saying that um, it will go away or I've cured it uh, gives more inspiration for why or motivation for why you would do it. And when you say like you're saying it, it's kind of like Lisa said about the costume. Like if you can't fit the dress, you just want to throw up your hands and walk out of the room. So I mean, a part of this, I I could understand the logic of why that myth continues, right? Because it seems in some ways that it would motivate someone to lose the weight. Absolutely, absolutely, because it is um, the self-image, the image of the, of the audience and what other people think about you. And so, yes, weight loss is it's beneficial, but it's definitely not a cure for diabetes. The thing that bothers me the most about this is, like, when you gain the weight back after you've been pushed to lose it, to lose it, to lose it, and it starts to creep back, I think that becomes the recipe for your own personal health tsunami because that's what I experienced when Luther had the stroke was I think at the time he was down about gaining the weight, and when you're down, you're not going to doctor's appointments, you're not, you're not checking blood sugars, you're not checking blood pressure, you're just kind of going, your health is no longer a priority. You're just trying to get through the day. And it seems like that's when anything could happen. <laughs> and so that, that's and that makes me so angry about this focus on weight is where's the net to catch someone when they can't do it? Absolutely. And there are so many people who, most people, um, once those numbers are good, and they have been told or have been assured that diabetes is no longer a factor, they're not testing. Just like you said, they don't test the blood sugar, they don't test the blood sugar, and I mean the blood sugar or the blood pressure, and they really think they're okay. And so uh, and, and even that, sometimes they miss appointments. It's like, you know, you're no longer, no longer really attentive to those things uh, that, that you were attentive to prior to managing because there's nothing to manage any longer. And so missing appointments, not taking medication because you're cured um, can lead to disasters. 
Well, you know, and, it, and it's interesting to think of, like, what Jason uh, Miles was saying and Chuck Flowers in regards to, like, uh, Jason was saying how he wanted to be in control of his uh, the whole recording session. You know what I mean? He liked the control of knowing that the synth could give him that drum beat uh, perfectly versus, like, someone doing it live, right? And Chuck Flowers talked about Luther being such a technician and knowing where to place his voice and things like that. Now, here you come to someone like that, and suddenly they get over to this other thing called weight that they don't have the same power over. And that's where I feel like Luther Vandross was just like anyone else. At that moment, when you don't have control over that, that's where things get a little cray-cray. Absolutely. Um, and that type of personality of being in control or, you know, controlling every aspect of your life except your health and not being able to uh, wave that magic wand and just make things happen. So it, it's really, uh, it plays with the psyche. It plays with the mind. And, um, you know, being a person who likes that side of the control button, it's it's not a good thing to not be able to, you know, to feel that you have lost control when it comes to your health and your body functions. So what do you say, Patricia, in these final minutes like of this podcast, what do you say to people who are going through that right now? Like what You educate so many people down in Atlanta. You worked with us for years with Diva Medic. What, what do you say to someone who's in that moment? Um. When I have someone who comes forward with issues with weight, I try really hard not to even talk so much about the weight, but I try and talk about uh, their health in general. Um, so, so it may be someone who is overweight, but we don't use the term overweight or being obese or what's your BMI, but we start by asking questions like, you know, are you happy with your current weight or your dress size or your, you know, are you happy with that? Because you'd be surprised how many people really don't want to be very, very thin, but they are, they feel comfortable in the body where they are. And so, you know, what is your desired weight? Um, what is your goal for your weight? But you start with the person where they are. And then if they seem to be in a happy spot, you can start talking about the blood pressure, the blood sugar, the cholesterol, and what an impact they they are able to make if they were to lose some weight or if they are having joint problems, the legs, the, the knees, the thigh, um, hips, if they're having pain in those weight-bearing joints, then that's a definite um, way to kind of segue into, you know, did you understand that uh, losing five pounds of weight will take pressure off of your, um, will take pressure off of those weight-bearing joints, and the pain gets better. And so, in that way. It's not so much that you're controlling the weight, but you're controlling the pain, and you're not having so much emphasis on, um, I, you know, my image or what I'm looking like, but I am feeling better. Or when you even talk to them about the cost of medications and how perhaps dosages increase, I mean decrease, like with blood pressure and with diabetes medications, Sometimes 
let's just say lifestyle changes, eating better, not dieting, but eating better, and doing some exercise, and, and you're talking about their general health, and so what an impact all of these lifestyle changes makes on the general health, it leads to weight loss without even discussing the weight loss. So you're All talking right, about... We're going to leave it there, Patricia, because that's a great okay. uh, thing to end. We're going to end the show tonight. we got to we got to play a little bit of See Me before we pick this up next month. But thank you so much, Patricia, for joining us today and, giving, and all our guests for being a part of our Luther Vandross Tribute Podcast. Yesterday was the first time that I didn't hear from you. Almost felt like the world had ended. Oh, what was I to do? Yeah, but you're the one for me, and only you can be my love fantasy. You left me up. 